On August 30th, 1990, around 9 p.m., 20-year-old Jason Bass and Joshua Post, his cousin, who was about the same age, were headed to pick up their friend John from Rocky Point Amusement Park. Jason had met him while working there, but had quit the week before. As they were leaving the park that day, they crossed ways with a dangerous stranger with a score to settle, and no one could have known the lengths in which he would go to settle that said score. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. Jason Bass was one of six kids, born to a lower middle class family in Rhode Island. He dropped out of high school around 16. He loved cooking and dreamed one day of owning his own diner. Jason got his first job at a local Burger King. Then after some time, he started working at a donut shop called Mr. Donut. Then in the summer of 1990, Jason was hired on as the manager at a food stand in the Rocky Point Amusement Park in Warwick, Rhode Island. But towards the end of the summer, he had quit his job and was looking for employment elsewhere. But while working at Rocky Point, Jason had met a young man named John, who managed another food stand in the park, and the two had become fast friends. So that night in August, Jason had his cousin, Josh, don't get confused with all these J names here. So we got Jason, Josh, and John. But Jason's cousin, Josh, he had him over to play video games and just hang out when they decided to pick up John when he got off work at the amusement park. So they drove Jason's dark red 1975 Ford LTD with a white convertible top up to Rocky Point. John jumped in the car and the three headed back in the direction of Jason's house. But all of a sudden, a dark colored car with what appeared to be about four adults came up in the rearview mirror like a bat out of hell, stopping only inches from Jason's bumper. The car was flashing its lights and the driver kept hanging his head out the window and gesturing to pull over. Joshua was in the passenger seat, confused as hell, and was really starting to get worried and saying, quote, what the hell is this guy's problem? He's ready to beef. <laughs> the three young men in the red Ford had no idea what they had done to warrant this treatment and were un understandably terrified. The car followed them for two miles then sped past them and slammed on the brakes, forcing Jason to come to a stop just inches from the bumper of the mysterious black car. A man exited the driver's side and was carrying a knife. Josh later testified that he ran at the car yelling, quote, You hit my car, man. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kick your ass. End quote. At this point, Jason throws his car in reverse in an attempt to escape the crazy man who just chased down his car and is now running at him with a knife at which point the man leaps onto the car, hanging onto the hood and driver window. Jason still has no idea what's going on. The man holds on for a distance of about 1,200 feet until Jason hits a tree in the front yard of someone's home. That someone being prison guard Bruce Bishop. He yells at the man to drop his knife, and he does. So then the man stumbles back and says, quote, I stabbed him. And he asked Bishop, for a glass of water. The man had stabbed Jason twice in the commotion. Once in the left arm, and the second strike went right into Jason's heart, killing him within seconds. 
The first officer was on scene almost instantly, as he lived just down the street and heard the crash and headed over to assist. As he was going out the door, he yelled back at his wife to call 911. He pulls up and finds Jason's car crashed on Bishop's lawn and another man standing in the yard drinking a glass of water, who happens to have blood all over his clothes. As he walks up to the man, he asks him what happened. And the man looks at him and simply says, I did it. The man is arrested and identified as 27-year-old Adam Emery, a customer service rep for a plastics manufacturer. But let's back up a little bit. Adam was born into an upper-middle-class family in Rhode Island. They weren't rich, but let's call them very comfortable. He served in the National Guard and the Army for short periods of time, before landing his customer service job. He married a woman named Elena in 1988, who was from Italy and one of five children. Elena's family were not wealthy, and they immigrated to America when Elena was little. Both he and Elena were considered, quote, very attractive, and apparently they knew it, some even calling Adam obsessive about his looks. But he also had one other obsession, and that was his black 1985 Thunderbird. And on August 30th, 1990, they were out to eat with Elena's sister and her husband. They were all sitting inside the car eating and planning to head to Rocky Point afterwards, which was very close by, almost sharing a parking lot. They were headed there in celebration of Adam and Elena's second wedding anniversary. Suddenly, they felt a jolt from behind and quickly realized that a car had sideswiped Adam's beloved Thunderbird, breaking the taillight and scratching all down the side. At that exact moment, Jason Bass was also pulling out of the parking lot. Elena's sister suggested they follow the car, and Adam took pursuit. When they turned the corner and Elena spotted the bright red Ford, she yelled, That's the car! That's the car! Adam followed Jason and claims it was only to get the license plate number. And then all of a sudden, Jason pulls over. Adam got out of the car to talk to Jason when Elena told him to take his knife. He claims he was walking towards the car calmly and explained to Jason how he hit his car. When Jason apparently tried to then run over Adam's brother-in-law, who had also exited the vehicle, and that is when he reached inside the car in an attempt to turn off the ignition. Jason then took off in reverse, dragging him on the car. He yelled a warning to Jason, telling him to stop and that he had a knife. And when he did not comply, he was forced to stab Jason out of self-defense, he claims. Police and EMT arrived just minutes later, pronouncing Jason dead and starting their investigation into what happened immediately. They were very quickly able to confirm that Jason's car did not match the paint or the scratches on Adam's car. Meaning Adam stabbed the wrong guy. You know, if you even believe that stabbing someone is a proper response to a fender bender in the first place. The car that hit Adam's was never identified. At his trial, Adam took the stance of self-defense and tried to shift all the blame to an innocent Jason. He never once showed remorse during the trial. But his family sure as hell did. Well, Elena's family did. Weeping in opera-worthy fashion when the guilty verdict was read, 
yelling profane statements and threats at the parents of Jason Bass and telling them, quote, they were going to get it, acting as if Adam had actually been justified in his actions. Adam was quoted as saying, in that situation, he was, I'm feeling there's no way out. I had to react. I had to do something. They didn't heed my warning, end quote. Adam's trial did not start for two years. And just after eight months in prison, his family and Elena's family raised enough to post his bail by putting their homes up as collateral. It was a total of three houses. While he was out, Adam carried on a normal life. He returned to work, even earning a promotion during this time. He was offered a plea deal of manslaughter, but was so confident in his self-defense claim, he didn't even take it. But that was a mistake, as he then lost the case. And on November 10th, 1993, which was also Adam's 30th birthday, he was found guilty of second-degree murder. But his sentencing hearing would not be for another month. So in a very, very stupid move, the judge allowed him out on bond until then. So they let a convicted murderer with the apparent capacity to just snap and kill someone if they scratch his car out on the streets again. And this time, he was going to take full advantage of it. Because Adam and Elena run. After leaving the courthouse around 4 p.m., they went into a sporting goods store and bought two black sweatsuits, two pairs of tube socks, two sets each of 10-pound ankle weights, 10 pounds of wrist weights, and 20 pounds of waist weights. The clerk at the store said they made no fuss. They seemed to know exactly what they wanted when they came in and then got upset at the price of their purchase. Right, could you imagine that? Mm. At 4.15, they were seen eating at a Burger King laughing and appearing happy. The last time they were spotted was around 5.30 p.m. on the Narragansett Bay Bell Bridge, a bridge that stands about 200 feet above the water. The car was found still running, and inside there were belongings of Adam and Elena, including cash, credit cards, and other clothes that they had worn to court, folded neatly in the back seat. The car is found at 6.53 p.m., on the 11th of November, 1993. Which means they allegedly jumped off the bridge during rush hour. And no one saw them? It's more likely that if they left the bridge that day, it was in another car. So did they have help? Both Adam and Elena's families received suicide letters in the mail just days later. They were mailed the day the couple allegedly jumped. An extensive search was done, with the families again stretching themselves financially to extend search efforts, but this again proved to be a loss too, as nothing came of it. However, that was until a skull was finally found by a fisherman almost a year after they disappeared. It was identified as Elena's. And just before the deadline of the families losing the homes they had put up for Adam's bail, whew, Right? Perfect timing. A leg bone was found with a sock that matched the ones the couple purchased earlier that day, and forensic experts believe it belonged to a woman. Now here's some real bullshit for you, though. A section from an article in the Washington Post about Adam Emery reads, 
If Adams' remains are positively identified, his attorney says he will move to have the case dismissed, because the Emerys died before the judgment was final. There is precedent for this move, which, if it's approved, would mean that Adam will have died officially an innocent man. And also this little tidbit. In Rhode Island, second-degree murder carries no mandatory penalty. The judge could have imposed anything from zero years to prison uh, to life in prison. Had she come down somewhere in the middle, say 20 years, for example, with time off for good behavior, Adam would probably have served eight or nine years. If they were about to jump to their deaths, why'd they get upset at the price of the items at the store? If they really jumped with all those weights, where are the weights? They should be directly down below the car. Where are the weights going to go? Did Elena jump willingly? And was the jump off the bridge what really killed her? After just nine months in the water, she was only a skull? That's crazy. It was not even fully intact, which leads some to speculate that maybe she did not die that day on the bridge. But maybe she was put there later. Did Adam jump at all? You know what I mean? That's one of the biggest questions I have. Is he still on the run? Did he, did he murder his wife or anyone else, uh, anyone else since Jason? And, who, and if someone helped him escape, who? And then why kill your wife if you do escape? Why not take her with you? Maybe, I know Elena did believe that the situation was her fault. She says that she told him to follow the car. She says that she told him to take his knife. She did take a lot of blame for this. And I think her family even blamed her for this. So it's not uh, way out of the realm uh, to believe that possibly Elena thought the best thing for her husband and for her family was to sacrifice herself. Therefore, if the cops found the bones, they found her skull, then surely he would be down there as well. Right? Or who knows? Maybe Adam chose to kill her just for the decoy. I mean, you're talking about a man who had no remorse for killing a stranger. No remorse at all. A man just just seconds after the crime scene says, I did it. Can I get a glass of water? That's the kind of person we're dealing with. So do I think he could go all Chris Watts and kill his wife? Absolutely. This guy, piece of shit. Wherever he is, I hope they find him. I really do. The case has been closed since 2004. And that's when Adam was declared dead. But after receiving new information, the FBI added him back to their list of fugitives. They have, quote, no reason to believe he's dead. They also still receive tips on Adam regularly. They believe it's very likely he's hiding in Italy or in Florida. And anyone with information is asked to call 1-877-RI-SOLVE. That's 1-877-RI-SOLVE. All right, guys. So that is the case of Adam Emery and Jason Bass. The murder of Jason Bass. Where the hell is Adam Emery? Let me know what you guys think. Personally, 
I think he's on the run. I think this guy is a vain, narcissistic bastard, and he's on the run. Hopefully one day uh, we'll catch a break with this case, and somebody will find him. Maybe he'll slip up somewhere, and somebody will find him. Or maybe he's dead. You know, maybe he killed himself too in just another fashion in a different place at a different time. I don't know. But that's my thoughts, guys. This case saddened me and deeply disturbed me, but most of all, it angered me. We talk about a lot of misjustice, of injustice, rather, on this podcast. And this is just another example. Another example of a convicted murderer allowed to walk free. Allowed to walk free. When they're already convicted, why do we give them the chance? They have nothing to lose at this point. They know they're going to prison. And we give them a chance to run. Because why? Because, oh, because the, the, the murder took place in a time of passion. In a time of, quote-unquote, self-defense. Or whatever it was ruled as. But either way, I'm interested to hear what you guys think. Um... If I see any updates about this case, as always, I will try to keep you guys updated on this because I am interested as well. I know this is an older case. I do realize it's it's 30 years old, um, but they've caught people, you know, a lot further back than that. So hopefully this Adam Emery will show his face again and slip up and uh, be brought to justice for real. So, uh, all right, guys, that's my thoughts. Let's check in with Lorne in this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The case of Adam Emery, who in August of 1990 was eating at an outdoor restaurant in Rhode Island with his wife and another couple when they witnessed his car get sideswiped by a car that was speeding down the road near the restaurant. He became enraged. Him and his wife ran out, jumped in the car, and began to chase after the car that had struck theirs. Um, Adam's wife, Elena, mistakenly pointed out the wrong car and Adam ran over to the car, uh, completely livid, jumped on the hood, was threatening the the driver of the car before the driver could get the window up to defend himself. Adam had a knife out and stabbed the driver in the heart. It was a 20 year old named Jason Bass, a completely innocent victim, the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and Adam Emery had killed him right there on the spot and his cousin would be witness to this i'm sure is traumatized to this day um now adam would be facing murder charges over something that he could have just you know gotten a license plate and reported to the police and let them figure it out um he would end up spending eight months in jail before being released on bail while his lawyer negotiated something now his lawyer did a pretty amazing job in that he was able to work out a plea deal uh, for lesser charges of voluntary manslaughter, all he had to do was plead guilty, but he was too narcissistic to do so. He refused to accept the deal, insisting that the killing was self-defense. How 
you could possibly think that would work. I don't, I don't understand. I think this guy had extreme narcissism. He was an egomaniac. Uh, it is interesting that his friends and his wife said they'd never seen this side of him. They had never seen him this angry before. Um, and it caught them off guard. Nonetheless, uh, on November 10th, 1993, he would be convicted of second degree murder and was awaiting his formal sentencing when he was released on bail to await sentencing. Probably not the best idea. Um, he would be facing up to 25 years in prison after turning down the plea deal where he could have gotten five years. Um, but yeah, he, he was released on bail awaiting his formal sentencing. And upon being released on bail, he disappeared with his wife. Uh, the last time they were seen was at a Burger King and then at a sporting goods store where, where they were seen purchasing wearable exercise weights. So they bought a bunch of weights that you could strap to yourself. And then that evening, their car was found on the Claiborne Pell Newport Bridge. Uh, the car was still running. Um, it was found abandoned. They had both mailed suicide notes um, and they were not seen again until 1994. So it would be a year later that anything would break. Um, Elena, Elena, her skull would be found and DNA would be able to prove that it was in fact her. And I think uh, the rest of her skeleton would be caught in like a fisherman's net something along those lines. Um, so they would determine that Elena had in fact jumped off the bridge. Um, now was she, did she jump willingly? Was she pushed? Because I believe she truly believed that they were jumping off together. Um, but one would be led to believe. And I think the FBI believes that Adam may have pushed her or convinced her to jump first and then not done his part. Um, however, in 2004, he would be declared legally dead um, and then there would be multiple sightings of him. Um, and in 2010, the FBI would place him on their most wanted list. They believe that he may have traveled, uh, to Florida or Italy and started, uh, and, and stated they had no reason to believe that he was dead. They hadn't found his skeleton. Nothing had washed up. Um, and numerous sightings of him continue to be reported. Uh, they, they believe now that he may be in, in, uh, Europe in either France or Italy, um, and they believe he's most likely in Italy because he has family in Italy. Now, one thing that I found very fishy, no pun intended, was when they were at the sporting goods store, him and his wife, Elena, when they were at the sporting goods store, he made a fuss about the cost of the weights and the things that they had purchased at that sporting goods store. You know, if you were about to kill yourself like an hour later, w why would you give a damn? I'd be buying everything in there that I can enjoy for the next hour wouldn't care about what my bank account looked like or anything like that. So that really points to him not planning to, to take part in this, uh, this packed suicide that he had with his wife. Now, he had plenty of time to set aside a plan, to set aside cash somewhere, um, to have a, sort of a bug out bag and have a plan for where he was going to go, maybe even purchase plane tickets uh, ahead of time or have someone else purchase tickets to go to Europe um, ahead of time thinking that if he was in fact found guilty, which was very likely that he would, you know, you know, his wife, they had this plan that they were going to kill themselves because when he was found guilty, she was seen, they were actually able to kind of uh, watch the footage of something that she whispered to him um, after his guilty, uh, guilty charge that basically they determined that she was saying it's time to do that plan that we had in place, uh, alluding to their, their suicide pact. Now, 
he could have had his own little plan here that he would convince her, yeah, that he was going to do that with her. And meanwhile, had been setting aside stuff for his getaway after she jumped off the bridge or he pushed her off the bridge. I think that's what likely happened, to be honest. I, I think it's easy to believe that, you know, he just jumped with her, but you'd think that something would have washed up by now. Um, I know that they were weighted down, so that could have made things take a lot longer. Um, but you would think whatever kind of um, vest or whatever they were wearing with the weights would have deteriorated by now and something would have turned up. And also what makes me believe that he didn't do his part in this suicide was that he was clearly a narcissist and clearly only cared about himself. His behavior time and time again showed this. The fact that he wasn't willing to take the plea deal that his lawyer had worked out, which is pretty incredible to get a manslaughter plea deal out of that. That was full-on murder. It may not have been premeditated. It may have done in a fit, been done in a fit of rage, but nonetheless, he stabbed an innocent man in the heart. Um, that was murder. And that he shouldn't have even been given a plea deal for five years, frankly. And he should have gladly taken that. But of course, his ego wouldn't allow him to. And I do think Adam Emery is out there somewhere, and I hope the FBI catches him. Um, so we'll see. We'll keep our eyes on this one. But that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right, guys. Well, it sounds like Lauren and I are in agreement on this case. Let me know what you think. Uh, that's an interesting way to think about it, though. That fact that, you know, maybe he was like, you jump first. I'm right behind you. Or, or maybe they're both standing on the edge and maybe he pushes her. You know, and then just gets back in the car and dips out. Because like Lauren said, something would have come up by now. These weights would have shown up. Something would have happened by now to, to show that Adam jumped. Right? If he was wearing all those weights and, and that suit and whatever, he would, he would be down there at the bottom of the ocean. Or at least the weights would be. Or the bottom of the river, rather. The weights would be right there. So... I don't know. Uh, like Lauren said, he's he's a narcissistic asshole that would probably go to any length to preserve him, to prefer, preserve himself and uh, his well being. So I'm sure he's living in another country under another alias, and uh, will probably never be heard of again, unfortunately. Um, and now, most likely, he's killed two people that we know of. So that's insane. All right, guys, so that's the case of Jason Bass and his killer, Adam Emery. Um, uh, for, so, for those of you that don't know, my wife, Kristen, um, plays a big role in this show and is a big part of the writing team and research team, and she helps me a lot in that way. And while we were researching this case, we decided that we wanted to tell this case um, mostly from the standpoint of Jason. We wanted to make sure that Jason's uh, part of the story and his cousin Josh's uh, testimony and everything were spoken for. Where they had a voice. A lot of the articles you read are all about Adam. They're all about Adam. Where is Adam? Adam Emery, this, that, whatever. His past, his family. Um, and we're seeming to forget that Jason Bass was just trying to live his life and have fun with his friends and he got stabbed in the chest. So... Um, that's why I entitled this episode Finding Jason Bass's Murderer Again. All right, guys. So I hope you enjoyed it. Let me know your thoughts and let me know where you guys uh where you guys think Adam's hiding out. All right.
All right, guys, it's time to do some shout outs. And I would like to start with my new patrons. Guys, patreon.com slash S and you podcast. For just three bucks a month, you get early access to these episodes. They will be released on Thursdays instead of Mondays like they are now. But if you like those Monday releases and you join Patreon, you still get Strange Shorts on Monday, which is another show I do, which is supposed to be shorter cases, but usually they end up still being 20 to 30 minute episodes. And I think I am on episode 24. Four of those. I think I just released 23 or 24 of Strange Shorts on Patreon. A uh, pretty interesting episode about a guy who bullshitted his way into NASCAR um, and won. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't win. It was, it was bullshit. But he did race, which is pretty impressive. So anyways, back to my patrons. I want to give a big shout out to Laura Ingham and Men, are, Men Sugar Cookies. I appreciate that very much, guys. They jumped on the $3 level, so they will be getting that early access on Thursdays as well as Strange Shorts every Monday. And like I said, guys, if you sign up now, you got quite a bit of stuff to binge. Uh, also, want to give a shout-out to anyone who has left a review for the show. Guys, the reviews, uh, they do help new listeners. Uh, they do help to bring attention to the show, and it does provide a form of feedback for hosts. Like me, of course. All right, so let's see here. Want to give a big shout out to Beppy83, left a five-star review. Says, yes, I'm so here for this podcast. True Crime Obsessed brought me here, and those DBs never disappoint. This podcast is insanely good and way creepy. Keep up the great work, Daisy. Oh, oh, wait, that must, that's, that's not for me. All right. Okay, here's one. Five-star review from uh, C. Musif. Says, Fantastic. Obsessed Network hits it out of the ballpark. No, it's not. Hmm. Some of these reviewers must be getting confused. Uh, Let's see. Hmm. Okay, here's one. Here's one. Uh, Five-star review. It says, The Loss of Another. Great podcast. Came here thinking this was a different podcast. Wish they had chosen another name as this one already existed. Thank you. And I am so glad I did. Great content, meaningful opinions, and great research. Thank you so much, The Loss of Another. And also, I want to give my final shout-out to Ashley Wellman. She says, Love this podcast. Informative and sharp. I stumbled upon this podcast on a long car ride, and now it's one of my go-to podcasts. There is an undeniable passion paired with incredible information. Respectful, tactful, and still feels like I'm in the living room listening to a best friend. And this is high praise, guys, because this comes from Dr. Ashley Wellman from the Path Went Chili podcast. And if you're not familiar with the Path Went Chili podcast, then maybe you're familiar with some of the hosts. The Path Went Chili is a podcast where Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold and also uh, Dr. Jules from Riddle Me That team up with criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman, who just left this review, uh, to discuss some of Robin Warder's favorite unsolved cases uh, from The Trail Went Cold. So very high praise there. Both fantastic podcasts with very empathetic, insightful, um, respectful hosts. So this, this review means a lot to me, and I appreciate that very much, um, Dr. Ashley Wellman. Thank you very much. All right, guys. So if you have time, please, wherever you listen, If there is an opportunity to leave a review or to download or to share, 
please. I appreciate it very, very much. If you guys have a case suggestion, you can hit me up on social media at Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Strange and Unexplained on Facebook, if you will, or uh, sandupodcast at gmail.com. That works just fine. All right, guys. Well, as always, I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you being here. And uh, remember, be strange. Just don't be strangers. 